I sent probably close to 15 emails over a span of three years uh, before they finally said, hey, I don't mind giving it a shot. I don't mind giving wow. it a try. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Questions with by Quest Ventures, the top venture capital fund in Asia. I'm your host, Azon, and as promised, I will take us on a tour around Asia's burgeoning startup ecosystem. In today's episode, we will be discussing in great details with our special guest from the media and advertising industry about the highs and lows of his startup journey. Our special guest today is none other than Karl Mark, the co-founder and CEO of Hatmill Media. Hatmill houses many renowned media brands across the region, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, like SGAG, PGAG, MGAG, and Hatmill Creators Network. Thanks for being here with us, Carl. Please tell us more about yourself. Who is Carl Mark? Hi, everyone. My name is Carl. I am 34 this year. Uh, and a little bit about my story. I graduated from SMU in 2013 with a Bachelor of Science in Economics. And, you know, I was very much bitten by the entrepreneurship bug. I wanted to start my first company right after graduation. And I did that, right? So I started a first startup in a call center enterprise software solution called Televate, which was funded by Quest Ventures uh, right when I graduated 2013. It ran all the way to 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it shut. It didn't work out. My first startup crashed and burned within a year or so. And very much after that, I ended up meeting my next co-founder. His name is Adrian, more commonly known as Xiao Ming. Mm -hmm. And we started SGAG together. Uh, that was in late 2014, early 2015. And so the two of us have been on this uh, startup journey together since then. Uh, and we've been lucky and fortunate enough to have built a couple of companies around the region, uh, consolidated now as a company called Headmill Media Group. So we own and operate uh, companies like SGAG, MGAG, PGAG out of the Philippines. We also have a creator network called HCN Headmill Creators Network, where we work with some of the top TikTokers around the region, as well as a YouTube Esports and gaming network called Ben Pixels Asia, uh, and yeah, that's basically who I am. So, you know, you talked about Televate, your first startup. What are some key lessons from your journey with Televate that have shaped you as an entrepreneur? So many lessons. Um, well, you see, Televate was a very hardcore tech enterprise product, mm -hmm. and you know, I had no background in tech. How how this startup actually came about was I really had this idea of solving the call center wait time problem mm. which I had experienced my mom experienced a lot and I wanted to build a software to solve that problem and, and I built an MVP together with my co-founder CTO and we launched it uh, not knowing how to get customers, not knowing who would buy the solution or how to sell enterprise solutions. It was like, wow, you know, how do big organizations like banks and telcos actually buy such solutions? And off we went, you know, I think we hustled a lot. I went to every conference there was that had, you know, CTOs of banks, CIOs of banks, any big shot from a bank that was in these conferences, I would show up and, and do an elevator pitch. And that's actually how we got our first couple of uh, pilot sales. Mm -hmm. We hustled a lot and I think that taught me the art of sales. Mm. Uh, I think selling big enterprise software was very, very difficult, right? The sell part is not the hard part. It's the integration that's really hard because enterprises take months to years to really integrate because like a big bank would have many, many levels of security clearances, operations clearances. And before you even get started, you know, 
our, our soft our company went out of money already right the runway ran out we had to close shop so it was it was tough uh, and and I think the second lesson I really picked up beyond the first lesson of selling was really picking picking the right battle because this startup you see we wanted to change these legacy organizations with this amazing MVP that we had mm. but the reality was it was probably going to take a lot of funding a lot of time before we would truly integrate into banks mm-hmm. and without any experience in enterprise software integration it was really foolish of us looking back but it was also interesting for us to really decipher how big organizations work and if we spent more time dissecting some of these things we perhaps would have pivoted to a more SME facing solution that could mm. have gotten us faster product market fit um, and you know I think these lessons are, are, are of studying uh, industry studying companies studying potential customers mm-hmm. was also a really key lesson for us that I think stayed with us for a long time to come just kind of matured into understanding how companies work and how services uh, software services would integrate and I think these are all very 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 important lessons that have carried along with me Mm, I see. Thank you so much for sharing so candidly about your journey with Televate Cow. I hope that all the aspiring entrepreneurs listening in are taking down some of these points, alright? And moving on with regards to market penetration. Okay, Hatmill has very successfully disrupted the traditional media and advertising space with innovative forms of content like memes. But I would like to know personally, what was the initial reception when you tried to sell clients memes? So we had two types of clients. Uh, the first type mm-hmm. of client is a, what we call inbound client, where a client already knew what we were doing. They already bought into our content and they wanted to work with us. So these yep. guys were easy to work with because they already had an idea of what they wanted and all it took was for us to come up with some new ideas of how their product or their brand would appear on our content. The The more challenging one would be our outbound clients where they mm. have no idea who we are, maybe just a little bit of an idea, but they certainly did not have any plans to work with us, right? Mm. And so to understand what we offer and then to actually consider uh, engaging us to do something with them, that process took a while. And some clients obviously looked at us and go, wow, you know, you guys are really cool, very interesting. I very much love to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And these are the guys that took a leap of faith and maybe bet on us a little bit from the beginning. Um, And then you had the second batch that that looked at us like, wow, what are we, what nonsense are we talking about, right? Mm. Why would I ever do that? I am a big CMO. Mm -hmm. This is too lowbrow for me. It is not something I ever would consider. And, you know, that was the pain of rejection, right? Mm. And I think that was really how our early customers or early prospects reacted when we went out to, to pitch them. And look at where the industry is today, right? Headmail has really come a long way and worked with so many, many big brands. So from being frowned upon, as you said, to what it is today, is really, really awesome stuff. So next question I have for you is, you know, can you detail the most extreme case of you trying to convince a client that memes work as a marketing content? Well, yeah, I, I had one case where it was a big, big brand, global brand. They were certainly, you know, very popular amongst young people, millennials, Gen Zs. And, you know, I remember writing to the the marketing team very early on, maybe 2015. And, mm. you know, they just ignored me. They, they, they didn't even bother replying, but mm. I just kept writing to them, right? Every time they launched a product, I would write to them and say, hey, look, you know, we could have done this or we made some memes, look at the traction of what we have done. Hey, hey, notice me. Hey, hey, hey. And I just kept going. (laughs) I think I I sent probably close to 
15 emails over a span of three years uh, before they finally said, hey, I don't mind giving it a shot. I don't mind giving wow. it a try. Right? Uh, and the next thing we did was to do something free of charge for completely mm-hmm. just to let them taste a little bit about what we could potentially offer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that was probably the hardest customer. Took me about three years countless rejections or I didn't even get rejections they just basically never even replied to me and then Mm -hmm. took a lot of free work a lot of pilot work to to convince them to try and then after trying they were like alright I'm convinced right and let's Mm. start working together and we still worked with them today I think we started working with them finally in 2019 2018 and till today we still do some work with them at a regional level so yeah that's one of the more Memorable clients. Uh, that is true resilience, everyone listening in. So, my next question for you will be with regards to how you've met your founder. You know, like many of the tech giants, like Google and Microsoft, they were all born on college campuses, right? The same can be said about Headmill because you've met your co founder, Xiaoming, in junior college or the equivalent of high school for those listening in from outside of Singapore. What are some qualities you saw in the 18 year old Xiaoming that made you think, you know, hmm? I might want to start a company with this guy one day. So, you know, the the first startup that I ever embarked on, my co-founder was somebody I met in a classroom. Mm. I met him at a programming course and we met and introduced each other and we started a company like a few months after that. So we had not known each other for a long time in my Mm. startup. And there were some issues along the way. He was a great guy, but still there were some trust issues. Mm -hmm. There were some hiccups about personalities, understanding each other through tough times and good times. And it was like dating or getting married to somebody you first met, just met, right? And so moving on to my second startup, Adrian is somebody I've known for over a decade you know we went to school together we you know went through life together Mm -hmm. and this was actually not our first business so we had a small little t-shirt business right after university uh before we we started this uh company we ran a small t-shirt business that went involved us going up to bangkok going to the malls and picking up shirts and then reselling it in singapore and that didn't work out very well i see after a year we decided that we were so different in our personalities style of work you know vision of what we wanted and and we decided never to work together again because we Mm. were clashing so much there were a lot of fights there was a lot of arguments and we decided to preserve this friendship Mm -hmm. we would never work together again so fast forward you know a couple of years later we go to uni together as friends we catch on this entrepreneurship bug again and he decides that hey you know since your first startup is is not working out would you consider mm-hmm. doing this with me and it was not easy because I, I treasure the friend, friendship a lot right and I said to him you know if we're gonna do this again we must ask ourselves how are we different now as compared to that previous business you know mm-hmm. what are some lessons that we have learned over the last couple of years you know as we mature into adults what are some things that are different about us you know what are your strengths what are mine and we started having these very open conversations about who we have become and what do we learn from that journey of our first business and so we realized and and we came to the conclusion that we were completely different in our skills and strengths and we were in fact very complimentary because of that 
So we drew up sort of what it was under his dominion, what was under mine. So he would take mm-hmm. all things creative, all things to do with content because that's really his thing. And I have no inclinations nor interest in producing content. Uh, I was very much interested in selling, right? Going mm-hmm. out to sell, going out to meet clients, build customers. Uh, and that was something that we realized we were very complimentary on. So drawing that divide from the beginning but also having that trust because we were friends because we understood each other so well how to make each other tick how to really connect with each other I think that allowed us to build a lasting partnership uh, which is something that didn't come naturally again we had to go through that first experience yep. mature enough for us to be able to understand who we were and then being open enough to talk about some of these things face to face to align on value sets vision and mission I think these were some steps we took to be able to build a lasting partnership. Wow, your relationship with your co-founder really went through a lot. And you know, I can't imagine working with someone after the type of fallout you had. And it's even more amazing that you both are having such a successful partnership the second time around. It's really awesome stuff. And you know, while we are on the note of success, I would like to take this opportunity to congratulate you and the entire Headmill team for closing a successful fundraising round late in 2021. Can you share how this entire journey was for you and the team? Yeah, so fundraising is something that I personally uh, had to be very thoughtful or very careful about that journey because of my first startup, right? Yep. I raised a bunch of money in my first company. I lost it all after a year. And that, that mm. feeling is not nice. That feeling has a bit of guilt, has a bit of mm. anxiety, has a bit of shame involved in it because, you know, you lost good money that came from good people, yep. right? So there is that that sort of self-guilt that I hang over myself over that first startup. But, you know, the second startup, we were very, very careful in raising money. Mm. We started going full-time early 2015 and we were generating a little bit of revenue. And when the question of fundraising was brought up early, you know, we said, no, we don't want to take money Mm -hmm. because we were not sure how the business would evolve. We were not sure how far this would go. And since we had revenue, uh, why not just take revenue and pay ourselves and hire our team from revenue? So we ran all the way bootstrapped from our own revenue until 2016 when we were thinking about regionalization and we were thinking about how to penetrate some of the regional markets. And we realized from our initial studies that Southeast Asia is highly relational. It's highly network-based. And we had no networks outside of Singapore mm. because we were young and, you know, we didn't know anybody. We don't have rich daddies that have big networks for us to tap on. Mm. So we were like, wow, you know, it would take us years before people would actually care about us or, or talk to us. And so we needed a, a hack. We needed yep. a way to accelerate that network by leveraging on somebody else's network, right? So Jeff, partner at Quest Ventures, back then he was not a partner yet, mm. was somebody that came along as an angel investor and he brought his decades of experience and networks in, in the advertising space across Southeast Asia uh, into our business and into our networks. And we were able to accelerate that exactly like what we had planned out to really connect with the people that we wanted to and and this went on from 2016 all the way through the pandemic 2020 2021 we were just like a seed funded company we never wanted to take more money because we were not sure you know how far the content business would go but over the course of the pandemic 
we yep. started a creator network because we saw so many new creators being born on a platform like TikTok and on YouTube, where through the pandemic, gaming watch times 3x on YouTube in Southeast Asia. TikTok bought birth so many new creators, so many new social media stars, if you would call it, because they were bored, they were shooting from home and they were expressing their ideas through a new platform like TikTok. And we asked ourselves in that moment, what does all this mean for us as a company? And we realized we had through the last couple of years become a bit of an OG in the social media content creation space because we had started making content all the way back since 2012 and people knew us regionally and we had regional presence in Malaysia and Philippines and we said hey what if we created this network would people want to work with us what if we could help young creators monetize their content what if we could help brands work with them and connect with them because they trust us they might not trust these creators yet what if we became mm. that platform for creators so we birthed this creator concept uh, this creator platform concept and we built HCN we built Brand Pixels Asia and after that you know we survived COVID the, pan- the lockdowns the pandemic we were able to grow regionally through uh, some of these ideas that we wanted to initiate and that's when we got a knock on our doors from our Series A investors and they said hey you know you guys have, have built something interesting through the last couple of years we'd very much like to explore whether we can help you scale and we looked at ourselves you know we have been running for about six years by then, yep. you know, we not raised that much money and we were so excited about the new direction of the business with the creator networks. And we certainly looked at ourselves and said, could we use a bit more cash, a bit more, a lot more wisdom from the new board members? And, you know, more importantly, did we see a similar vision for, for the creator economy in Southeast Asia? And when we had these conversations during the fundraise pitches, we realized that, hey, you know, it was very, very complimentary. It was more a partnership than anything else. And that gave us the confidence to say yes to our Series A investors, which, you know, since then, it has been great. You know, we're learning so much from them. There's just so much exchange of knowledge. And mm. I think that that is something that we are very, very privileged to, to be able to go through. Right. I'm sure it doesn't hurt to have a few more wise brains in the room, right? When making decisions, it makes them that much sharper and makes it that much more informed. Okay, next question I have for you is, how did you feel when you finally signed on the dotted lines of the investment agreement? It was a dual or double-edged sword kind of feeling, right? Mm. On one hand, I'm so relieved because, you know, we are able to have the funds that we need to accelerate into the region, to to pay our people better, you know, to give more benefits to the people. And I think this was something that is a, is a weight off my shoulder in some mm. sense because there were people who have been with us for six, seven years, five, six, seven years, been with us for a long time. Many of them took a pay cut or took a lower starting pay to join us because they wanted to work in a startup or they believed in our vision. Mm. And being able to just give back to them, give more to them uh, because we have a little bit more resources is a wonderful, wonderful and very meaningful feeling. I think the opposite end of that is oh my goodness you know now we have more pressure more targets right more things to do and that is also more weight added on my shoulder so some weight was taken off but more weight was added but again you know we look at the nature of our investors these are investors that you know we have a relationship with we believe in the shared vision of what we want to achieve together and certainly there's a whole wealth of experience and knowledge 
for us to tap on. So I think overall, it was a very, very positive feeling. Uh, we are not big on partying or anything like that. So I think all we did was, I think, go to the Kopitiam and, and share the Kopi together, Adrian and I. And that was that, right? Go back to work and continue working again. Um, so yeah, that was how that whole experience went through for us. You know, thank you so much for your response, Carl. It really tells us a lot about you and how much you appreciate your colleagues and the trust from investors. Okay, Carl. So I picked out in your introduction that you said, you know, Hatmill is entering into the esports and gaming industry through Ben Pixels Asia. Can you tell us a little bit more about Ben Pixels Asia? Absolutely. So we work mainly with general entertainment content creators our DNA has been very much linked to comedy because of SGAG mm. and you know we have been helping a lot of these creators monetize content in, in these verticals and you know we have always looked at the esports industry with a very very keen eye a very interested eye but we never ever saw any linkages or opportunities that were relevant for us because we didn't want to feel the esports team that's not what we are able to do that's not our dna we looked at the events space and also not something that we want to do so when mm. we met uh, ben pixels asia is a joint venture actually with a us-based company called bent pixels and what bp does for short is that they actually have this technology that allows them to remove uh, YouTube channels AdSense from the auction system and sell these ads direct to clients, right? And they do this in partnership with YouTube Gaming to help the largest esports teams in the world make more money on AdSense. So how that works is, for example, uh, they work very closely with FaceClan. Everybody knows FaceClan. And FaceClan is a very premium, very big and very popular esports team in the US. So you imagine all their esports players uploading a bunch of content on YouTube every single day, gameplay highlights, vlogs, uh, and a lot of them live in the, in the gaming house. So they have a lot of content coming out as a team. And because FaZe Clan is kind of like the maybe the Liverpool or Manchester City of gaming, where mm. it is not your regular S-League or Sunday League team. These are the pinnacle teams of the industry. They are the biggest, they are the best. They should be earning more money as compared to a regular YouTuber. But unfortunately, the YouTube auction system doesn't differentiate between whether you are a, a premium channel or premium brand versus a person just making vlogs in the bedroom, right? So you earn the same CPM rates, if, if you call it that way. So what Ben Pixels does is basically we sign up all these big esports teams, we take their channels off the auction, and we set prices for these channels. So we tell advertisers, hey, if you want to advertise with our channels, you have to pay a premium rate because these are premium channels. And so in Asia, we have launched in Indonesia and in Philippines, and we partner with the likes of EVOS, Tier 1, uh, and these are some of the biggest uh, teams that field stars that play in tournaments like MPL, MSC. They also have teams that are running in Free Fire, for example. Uh, and these are the champions of Southeast Asia. So the goal of Ben Pixels Asia is really to elevate the revenue opportunities for esports and gaming channels uh, across Southeast Asia. Oh, you really got me very excited for what Hatmill has in store for all of us in Southeast Asia. Okay, to end things off, right? Can I have you share a few words of advice, you know, to our aspiring entrepreneurs who are listening in? 
Well, I mean, I've this is my second startup, and you know, startups are really, really, really difficult. I think one thing that has really helped me over the years is to really look for a community of founders that are able to support you or to guide you or to really just hang out with you because entrepreneurship can be a very lonely journey. I think most of my closest friends that I've uh, you know hung out with in the last. Seven years have really been founders themselves because we deal with issues that are very unique to entrepreneurs. And if you talk to your maybe secondary school friend or your university friend, they might not understand if they are in the corporate world. They might not mm. be able to give you good advice. But you know, talking to a founder friend who has gone through it, who has maybe great advice of how they've overcome certain challenges. Is priceless, and today, even still today, you know, I talk to a lot of founder friends. We exchange a lot of knowledge, a lot of information. We help each other sort of get through tough times together, and I think that's one of the greatest things you can do for yourself, really, to connect yourself into the ecosystem, build a support system, build friendships that last, and really explore, you know, things and opportunities together, right? And I think that's one of the most beautiful things also about being an entrepreneur in Southeast Asia or in Singapore, which is there are so many like-minded individuals. You just need to find. Them and, and and to build relationships with them. I see. So to summarize that, uh, it is important to fit yourself into a community and build rapport, right? Thank you so much, Carl. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm your host Azon, and once again, thank you guys for tuning in to Questions with by Quest Ventures. This episode was recorded in Pixel, an incubation and innovation space by IMDA. For more information, visit impixel.imda.gov.sg. Thank you.